Charlie and Karen Drexel, if they could help me to kind of be my visitation secretaries and coordinate, uh, making sure that I can get to hang out with each one of you in your homes at some point. And some of you have, I've already visited, and, and uh, what I find is that when I, I spend time with you in your home, it's a lot easier for me to remember your name. And I understand more about you when I spend time with you in your context. So I've asked them to, to, to start setting up some appointments, mostly on Tuesday afternoons, but um, if you have a specific time of the week that's better for you, um, let me know or let Charlie and Karen know and, and we'll work it out because I'd like to spend some time with you. Um, I also was, was interested to see how our chair arrangement changed. <laughs> And, and I, I like how we, we kind of just regroup and, and it's almost this artistic thing that happens dynamically as people come into the, the, this new space that we're meeting in. I'm, I'm really grateful we have the sanctuary, I'm not, not the sanctuary, the, the gym, because if we were continuing to meet in the sanctuary, the state requirement is that we'd all have to wear masks. So because we have some more space, you don't have to wear a mask and you don't have to get mad at me for requiring it. <laughs> so there's, uh, it's, it's nice to have this space. And uh, if you uh, are coming in and you don't find a chair easily uh, available, we're, we're pulling more out um, as, we, um, as we see people coming in. But anyway, I, I also wanted to thank those that have set out the chairs, the deacons, the deaconesses, and uh, the PA crew that's changing all the time. This is not the most convenient place for us to meet because we have to put it together on Friday and take it down on Sundays, but we're grateful that we have this space. So let's, uh, as we open God's Word, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we're just so grateful for you, for your, your Word and the insight that it brings our lives. You said that your Word is a lamp to our feet, and Lord, we need some light today. Please enlighten our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It was springtime. You know, the, the time of the year where the trees are budding and, and leaves are coming out and the hillsides are turning green. Well, here in, in, in Bonner's Ferry, it's kind of green all the time, it seems. But, uh, but this was in Palestine, a place that's barren a lot of the time. And so the springtime is where things just come alive. It's, it's the time of the year that some people say it's the time for love. But in David's time, it was the time for war. In fact, first, Second Samuel chapter 11 says that it was the springtime of the year, the time that kings went out to war. And, and then it says that uh, all of Israel was going out to war. But King David, he was hanging out in Jerusalem. And you know the story. It's a story of lust, and it's a story of compromise. It's a story of, well, she says, I'm pregnant, and then it gets all complicated, and uh, it, it, there's deception, and there's schemes, and finally there's murder. I mean, this is the worst situation, the, the most extreme scenario for adultery that you can find, and, and it's all here in the story of David and Bathsheba. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, 27, God says, uh, the Bible says this, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Why? I mean, of course, we know why it displeased the Lord, but why? Why, why is this displeasing to God? God said in Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. He makes this command, and it's somehow connected to an essential part of loving God with all your heart, and loving your neighbor as yourself. 
Somehow, this is part of that story. I'd like to suggest that along with murder, which David did as well, adultery is one of the most significant barriers to relationship that, that exists. When we have such a, a failure of the covenant uh, that adultery brings into a relationship, it's very difficult to restore that relationship. And I would even suggest that much like murder, it requires an act of God, a miracle, a resurrection of sorts in order for love to be restored. It's not impossible, but it needs a miracle. Now, we like to use euphemisms for adultery. Can you think of a few? Um, we might say stepping out or walking out on your marriage, uh, having an affair. Uh, when the former governor of South Carolina had an affair, his aide uh, simply told people that he's uh, off hiking the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> euphemisms, things that kind of obscure what's really going on with adultery. The two words that I like the most, because they, they capture the meaning the most in my mind, are being unfaithful and infidelity. Because both of these words suggest that there was a promise that was made and a promise that was broken. A promise made and a promise broken. And, and they're in contrast to the words that describe what the promise is really supposed to be for. Uh, for example, faithfulness is a, a part of the promise. When we commit ourselves to a spouse, I'm committing to be faithful to you, right? Um, I'm committing to, be, to have fidelity, truth, and, and, and uh, um, this, this covenant relationship with you. And so to be unfaithful is to break that vow. A number of years ago, my wife and I stood before God and before our family and before the uh, friends and, and uh, relatives that, that came to our wedding ceremony, and we made a covenant with each other, and we said, I do, those famous words. Uh, just a, an example of a traditional Protestant marriage vow. In the name of God, I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. That's a kind of a common way of, of making this covenant in marriage. I, I like the Celtic vow that goes like this. Ye are blood of my blood and bone of my bone. I give ye my body that we too might be one. I give ye my spirit till our life shall be done. It's beautiful. Now these traditional wedding vows the, they're something that we understand, but if you were to go and try to find the marriage vows in the Bible, you wouldn't find them there. It might surprise you. These vows find their origin in the Book of Common Prayer, written by a guy named Thomas Cranmer from around 1549 AD. And that's where the, the traditional wedding vows come from. But even though they're not found in the Bible itself, we find the principles of these vows, and, and we find it specifically in the covenant that God made with Israel. And we're going to look at this covenant in a moment. Uh, you, if you want to get a jump start, we're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 16. And it's not exactly the words of the covenant that we're going to look at. We're going to look at the story of this covenant that God's making. But I just want to point out as you go there that we're, part, we're in this uh, series called God Wrote Love. And we're looking at the Ten Commandments, not examining closely the prohibitions, the commandment um, gives us or the things it protects us from, the, the problems that it protects us from, 
But we're, we're kind of looking, turning around and we're looking at all the possibilities that the law enables in our lives, the things that it empowers in us. And in, in this particular series, or in this particular sermon, we're looking at the command that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And many of us, we can say with, with certainty, I haven't violated that law. I have not committed adultery. But I wonder if we have fully embraced this, this law and what it allows in our lives, the concepts of fidelity and faithfulness that, uh, that really draw us together in marriage. And we're going to explore a little bit of that today. But as you, as you think about this, and maybe you're not married, and so you're like, well, this sermon isn't for me. Uh, but as we think about this, I'd like you to explore both the spiritual nature and the relational nature of this covenant idea and the possibilities that not committing adultery and, and following the, the path God intended might, uh, might include. And we're going to explore these in two passages. Um, in Ezekiel 16, we're going to look at God's covenant to his people. And in Ephesians 5, we're going to look at the application that Paul makes of this law into our lives. But while we do that, while we look at the, those two stories, I want you to be thinking about Revelation chapter 3 and the story of the Laodicean church. Because while you may not have committed adultery, you may also not be at the, the, the top end of loving, relation, or loving relationship in your marriage. And maybe you are in that middle zone in your marriage or, or in your spiritual life. Like Laodicea, kind of content. It's good enough where we are. It's not really bad, might, might not be really good, but, but I'm content, I'm good. Think about that story of the Laodicean church and, and examine your own heart as we explore these, these two passages. Go to Ezekiel 16. When Joelle and I were engaged, I remember one time, maybe more than once, but at least one time, and I did get her permission to share this, by the way. Um, when we were engaged, she asked me this question, why do you love me? And I had lots of good answers for that. I could tell her, well, it's because you're so beautiful or because you're, you're really intelligent and I enjoy your writing. Um, I mean, I could, I could go on and on and on about the, the things that I love about my wife. But for whatever reason, um, I, I thought through this and I, and I, I thought, you know, if, what if she is no longer beautiful? You know, she gets, um, you know, in an accident or something or, you know, whatever happens, you know, is, is that a reason to not love her? So if, if her lack of beauty later, potentially, whatever, um, might, if that's not a reason to stop loving her, then is it, a, is it the reason why I should love her today? I probably thought too much about this. Um, <laughs> I, I went, went on and processed this, and after, after a few moments, I said, because I choose to. <laughs> I'm not sure that it was the most romantic thing that she could have heard me say, but I kind of think it's, it's biblical. I, I wasn't processing it on any, like, um, uh, high level at the time. It was just what I, what I chose to say. But here in Ezekiel chapter 16, you find the story of God coming along, and, he, and he, he creates this metaphor of Israel as his people. Um, he creates this metaphor of, of Israel being uh, first a baby um, and then growing into a woman. And let's read it, starting in verse 3. Um, God says to Ezekiel, Give her this message from the sovereign Lord. You are nothing but a Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. 
On the day you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut. You were never washed, rubbed with salt, and wrapped in cloth. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field, and left to die. There's nothing that that Israel has to offer God. It's not like God looks around and is like, oh, wow, she's mighty fine. Like, God doesn't have this interaction, like, oh, wow, she's, she's got it all put together. She's, she's such a professional person, you know. He doesn't really think about those types of things. He simply sees this unwanted, unloved, unwashed, and, and abandoned child. And in, in verse 6, he says, I came by, I saw you there, helplessly kicking about in your own blood. As you lay there, I said, live. If you, don't, if you underline your Bible, that's a word to underline. God has in, in interjected himself into this person's life and said, I want you to thrive. I helped you to thrive like a plant in the field. You grew up and became a beautiful jewel. And uh, I'm just going to read it as the Bible says it, if you don't mind. It might be a tiny bit awkward, but we'll process it together afterwards. He says, your breasts became full, your body hair grew, but you were still naked. And when I passed by again, I saw that you were old enough for love. So I wrapped my cloak around you and covered your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I made a covenant with you, says the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. In the story, God doesn't lavish his love on um, the, the person with natural beauty and poise. He, he lavishes love on somebody that's unwanted and alone and in great need. And he loved her because he chose to love her. He said, you're mine. I want you. In our marriage vows, we say things like, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, because it's this example of God loving the apparently unlovable that inspires us. Love is not based on what we get. It's, it's based on our vow, our commitment to love. When God chose Israel as his bride, he chose her for the long haul. And he, he says things like um, that, that he has enduring love or my steadfast love. He talks about himself as having this um, never failing, never giving up kind of love for Israel. But Israel, do they respond with that kind of love for God? If you keep reading on in Ezekiel, you'll find that he, he says that he decked her with jewels and gave her all kinds of clothes and she took the jewels that he gave her and she went out and paid for other people to, 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 to take her as their prostitute. She wasn't paid for it, they, she paid for it. That, that was the kind of attitude that she had. And he describes her um, idolatry and going after other gods as adultery because it was a, a breaking of this covenant vow that, that God had made with her. Hosea chapter 4, God makes these, um, well, in a theological term, we, cov- we call them a covenant lawsuit. It's a divorce lawsuit is what it is. Um, he's saying, you broke my covenant, and so therefore, this is the response that's going to be made. And, and uh, in verses 1 and 2 of Hosea 4, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness no steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And he describes some bad things that they're doing. Those words, faithfulness and steadfast love, these are the 
the things that the covenant of marriage is looking for, that's the, the thing that it's supposed to enable, is faithfulness and steadfast love. And these things that he says Israel doesn't have, he makes sure to tell us that they are part of his very nature. This is who God is. And, and look in Exodus 34, and you'll find that God interacting with Moses there on the mountain, he's in the cleft, and, and he says, I'll declare my, my great name. And he describes himself, and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in abounding. What is that word? That's like a word that's like full and overflowing. It's more than you need kind of a, uh, of a thing. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These are things that are, are part of God's relationship with us, the, the foundation of his relationship with us. One of the psalm writers understood this aspect of God's character, and he made sure to, to communicate it really clearly. And if you, you look in Psalm 136, you'll find this repeated over and over and over again. His faithful love endures forever, or his steadfast love endures forever. And, and he goes on, he says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, the Lord of lords. Give thanks to him who does mighty things, who alone does mighty things, he says, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to him who made the heavens, who placed the earth among the waters, who made the, the heavenly lights, the sun to rule the day, the moon and the stars. His faithful love endures forever. He says, give thanks to him who killed the firstborn in Egypt, who brought Israel out of Egypt, who acted with a strong hand and a powerful arm. Give thanks to him who parted the Red Sea and led Israel safely through, but hurled Pharaoh's armies into the Red Sea. He's, he's saying, give thanks to the God of gods, the creator God, the redeemer God. His faithful love endures forever. He describes more of the experience of Israel coming into the land of Canaan and defeating kings and, and uh, saving them from their enemies. And then he says this. He says he gives food to every living thing. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His faithful love endures forever. Do you see how he's talking about the creative work of God and that being an example of his faithfulness and his love? And he's talking about the redeeming work of God and that being an example of his faithfulness and enduring love. And then he's talking about the protective work of God and, and the, the providing work of God and how that demonstrates his faithful and enduring love. I think it's this kind of enduring love that God intends in marriage. When he says that uh, the two shall be one, back in Genesis, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, Interestingly, the Bible doesn't record a vow that they made to each other. God gave them to each other. Um, and uh, so that there's some interesting ideas there. But, but when Adam sees Eve, he says, at last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And, and then the Bible says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. This unity that the Bible describes in marriage is intended to be a faithful, enduring love, something that doesn't end, doesn't break off easily, isn't, um, isn't broken up. And so let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. You might want to hold your finger in e e Ezekiel if you want to reference back to there, but um, go to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll look at Paul's 
I think this is Paul's version. Verses, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are kind of Paul's version of my God Wrote Love series on the Ten Commandments. And you can see there, he talks about almost all of the last six commandments in, in this, uh, these three chapters. And he, he looks at them and he says, don't do that instead, and he focuses on what God intends. And he, he talks about the things that we shouldn't do, the disobedience to the law, as walking in darkness. And then when he talks about the things we should do, he calls it walking in love or walking in the light. So towards the end of Ephesians 4, I just wanted to point this out. He says, this is verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. These are relational problems, right? These words, they're about things that harm and, and get between relationships. But then he says to be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. These are the expressions of faithful, tender, enduring love. And, and he goes back and forth between these, these contrasts, the darkness and all the disobedient stuff and the light and all the stuff we should be doing. There in Ephesians 5 verses 7 and 8, he says, therefore do not become partners with them, the people that do the works of, of evil and darkness. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then in, in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And I want to just highlight this word because it's important, I think, to this concept of faithfulness and enduring love. What does it mean to expose them? Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, it makes, it makes sure to point this out. Adam and Eve were exposed. They were naked and not ashamed. You see, when we hide things, when we put things in the dark, they become um, problems that fester in our lives and create um, sin in our relationships with other people and with God. And, and so Adam and Eve, they didn't have any barriers between them. They were without shame, completely exposed. I, I think that when we look at the idea of exposing the works of darkness, we're not talking about some shameful public, uh, you know, exposure where we, we're like, oh, look at them, they did, and we list off some sin. That's not the idea. Uh, in fact, in, in the next few verses, verses 13 and 14, it says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It becomes visible. Well, yeah, it becomes visible. You can see it. But then he goes on. He says, anything that becomes visible is light. But works of the light are not works of darkness. They're opposites. And I think what Paul is trying to say here is when we expose the problem, when we put the light of Christ on the problem, it changes us. It transforms us. Like putting your laundry out on the line where the sun can, can uh, shine on it. And, and the nasty smells that are in your clothes just kind of vanish away because the light changes them. And, and so he says, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What it means to expose the works of darkness here is to, well, it, it means there's a resurrection. What was dead is now alive. What was dark is now light. So he, he's, he's talking about this light and darkness contrast. He's talking about um, a, a conversion experience. And in this context, he, he applies this, this law about adultery. And he says, this is what we're really supposed to be doing. Verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
submitting to one another. If we, if we continue on and read the rest without underscoring this particular line, then we get a little confused about where, where Paul's going. But he says, submitting to one another. And that, that means that as a man and a husband, I am to submit to my wife. And as a wife and, and uh, a woman, my wife is supposed to submit to me. Right? That, that's submitting to each other. And then he, he explains what he means by submitting to each other, starting at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In everything. Some of, of, of us men are, you know, we want to say, yeah, honey. <laughs> and uh, some of the wives are like, please don't read that verse. And I think if it's in God's word, it's intended for us. Would you agree with that? If we're going to be people of God's word, we need to look at this and say, yes, Lord, let it apply to me. But to do this well, we need to shed some of our cultural baggage. When we read the word submit, we have a particular understanding of that. And, and somehow in the culture, we, we see a timid, um, just, you know, just goes along with the flow. Maybe uh, a little passive aggressive uh, behind the scenes, but she's like, uh-huh, yeah, honey, okay. And she does what she's supposed to because she's, that's her role, you know. Um, but that's not what it means to submit. And, and then the other word we, we see that we need to shed our cultural uh, back. And we have this mindset of leadership when it comes to head. We're like, yep, I got 51% of the vote. I'm the boss. Um, and and we, we kind of have this perspective of a, an unbiblical leadership that's maybe um, autocratic. Um, <laughs> not that you should, but if you've ever watched Star Wars, a little bit Jabba the Hutt, you know sitting on the couch telling the wife to go get my, my drink, you know. That's not the implication the Bible has when it says head, and it's not the idea that it has when it talks about submission. Um, to really understand Paul's instruction to submit, I think we need to go back to Ezekiel and look at how the church was intended to submit to God. See, the contrast in submission here is that God he brings everything to Israel, and he says, grow you up, and, he, and she starts out as this baby that's still got the, the, the blood from birth on her. She still has the umbilical cord and the placenta attached, and she's out in the field without any protection. She's going to die, and God comes in, and he washes her, cleans her up, and, and creates the context for thriving, this is what it means to be the head in a marriage relationship, to create that context of thriving and growth and possibility and, and empowerment. It, it's to make this person, well, in, in, in God's case, looking at Israel, he said that, that he was going to make her beautiful and give her every possible advantage in life. And, and then it, it, it describes her growth. She's a child, a baby, a child. Then she becomes an adolescent and a teenager. She develops into maturity and becomes ready for love at the age of, of uh, marrying. And, and God says, I want you, and marries her. It's a, a growth and development that it theoretically wouldn't stop there, except she doesn't submit. She says, sure, at first, but then she, she walks out on God, and she commits spiritual adultery, and she chases after other gods. 
And I think this is the idea that we need to apply when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, and it says to the woman, submit to the husband as to the Lord. You see, the Lord's intention is to create every possibility for thriving and life and for possibility and, right? This is the idea of God's relationship with the church. And I think that that should be the responsibility of every man to create the possibility of thriving for their marriage. It's a role of spiritual leadership where we have to step in intentionally and make sure there's opportunity. I'll give you one example. I'm not necessarily the best person to, to demonstrate this, but I'll give you one example. When uh, my wife and I were engaged, before I asked her if I could marry her, I asked her parents. And her dad said to me, um, he, he said, uh, okay, yeah, I, I, I'd be okay if you married her, but uh, could you please wait till she's finished with college? She was at her, she, it was her third year of college, but um, because of her first two years at a Bible college, she's at Andrews now, and, and she basically was at the very beginning, a freshman. And so she had at least two, maybe three more years of school before she'd be able to graduate. That was a, that's a long way to wait. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the, uh, the next day, I asked you all to marry me. <laughs> I told her what her parents had said, and uh, we talked it through, and we decided we'd be getting married in September. And we told her dad that the next morning, that, that we'd be getting towards the end of September. And he said, of which year? He's concerned that he, she's going to go off and marry this young man. Um, and and I, had, uh, I had almost finished my college degree. Um, I was working at the time, so I had an income, but um, I, I hadn't finished my college degree. And he's thinking, I, I don't know, I'm not trying to put thoughts in his mind, but I think what he was thinking was, she's going to go off and marry this guy. Um, neither of them are going to finish their degrees. Their potential for income is going to be low. And, uh, and, and she's going to get pregnant pretty quick and not be able to finish her schooling. And so one thing that I told Joelle early on, and I told her, her dad, is that I wanted to make sure she'd get through her college. And so it was six and a half years before we had kids. And Joelle finished her college degree, and she finished in, uh, the internship to get her, her teaching certificate. And I think that, as a, as a husband, it was really important for me to make that investment in Joelle, um, to make that investment in her thriving and her possibility for growth and for the future. I, I, in, I spent time making sure that she was empowered. And that's what, God is, that's what God is doing here in Ezekiel 16. Now, Joel has the opportunity to say, sure, that's great. I will take the opportunities that you make for me. Or she can say, no, no, thank you. And Israel said, no, thank you. I don't want what God's offering. And she committed spiritual adultery as a result. And so submission to God's love is in contrast to adultery. It keeps going here in, um, well, I, I, I wanted to point out before I, I go to the next uh, application and look at the, the husband, God talks about submission in the context of mutual submission. It's really difficult to be submissive to somebody who is unloving and not submissive back. And, and I think this is why God encourages us not to be um, joined to somebody who is not um, on the same in the same place as us. Uh, Paul says it this way, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Or in uh, another place in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with, uh, with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. 
the in intention is that submission be mutual. And so for the wife to be truly submissive to the husband, the husband has to be truly submissive as well. So, so let's go to the, the next few verses. If you think that your husband, or your, as husbands, if you think your wives should be your servants and submit in everything and be just obedient little um, uh, uh, servants to you, uh, th this is not the biblical aspect of, of leadership. And, and Paul goes on to describe what biblical leadership is and what it really means to be the head. And he says it this way in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you catch the nobility of God's love? How it en ennobles and raises up and, and, well, it's that word that he used. He says, I looked and I saw you in the field and I said to you, live. And I did everything to make your life thrive. That's what he's doing, making her beautiful and spotless and, and wonderful. And of course, this is a spiritual thing. The spotlessness is about our hearts, but but when we look at the marriage idea, because he's applying this to the husband in leadership, he's saying that our job is to ennoble our wives. And he says in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Blood of my blood, flesh of my flesh. This is what Adam said. And he says, when you're married, you become one flesh. You got to love your wife as though she's your own body. Invest in her as you do yourself. Um, Paul is, he's uh, explaining this submitting to one another. The wife surrenders herself and everything to the marriage covenant. Her money, her time, her, her passions, her interests, her future. Everything is submitted to this marriage covenant. And the husband does the same and says, no matter the cost, I'm all in. There's no barriers here. I'm, a, I'm submitted in every way to this marriage covenant that I've made. God sees our brokenness and he sees our problems and he says to us, live. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have brokenness and problems in your marriage? The call that Paul is making to us as husbands is to say to our marriage, live, and to invest whatever it takes to make that possible. Paul goes on in verses 31 to 33 to quote Genesis chapter 2, uh, where Adam had uh, uh, said this, this statement, uh, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. It's deep. It's, it's got a lot there. We should study it out is kind of what he's saying. And he says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul calls this a profound mystery. And yet it's one that we can experience. It's not beyond our potential reach. And I'd like to challenge you 
to take Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 5 and explore these ideas about light and darkness and, and consider the characteristics that he describes, uh, the things that we should do in, in relating to each other. And, and this idea where he says to walk in love, as you study these two chapters, I'd like to encourage you to, to make a commitment to yourself, to God, and to your spouse that you be that person who's walking in love and letting the, the love of Christ shine through you, exposing in that best and most noblest of way the darkness in your marriage and in your heart so that the light of Christ can live in you. Things like forgiving and being honest, letting go of bitterness and anger, ceasing to speak malicious words to your spouse, being kind and tender. These are the kinds of things that Paul describes as walking in love. And, and I'd like you to study those things and ask yourself, not just uh, a, a, a cursory thing like, oh yeah, be kind, to, be kind and tender, I should do that. But, but look and see, what does it mean to be kind and tender to my spouse? I don't know the darkness that you have in your hearts. I don't know the challenges that you have in your relationships, but I'd like to challenge you to not let those things sit as they are. Don't be content where you are. Don't be Laodicean in your marriage. Seek for that, that passion, that, um, that deep and abiding love, that enduring faithfulness that God has for us. Where, where you can be united and shameless, having a naked love for your spouse, so to speak. Maybe the, the thing that separates you from your spouse is, is work, and, and your work has drawn you away and created a barrier between you and enduring love. Maybe it's lust that has drawn your eyes away from your marriage. Maybe it's another person who you've allowed to create emotional bonds with you that, that create a barrier between you and your spouse. Maybe it's this false sense of leadership um, that causes you to love yourself more than your spouse. Maybe it's simply laziness that has kept you from investing intentionally in your relationship. Whatever it is, I'd like to encourage you to expose that darkness to the light of Christ's love. And I think when both partners do this, when both uh, people in that marriage do that, then the possibility for your love to grow is endless. It will never stop growing deeper and broader and, and brighter. And, and your home can be that example of what God wants in a relationship with his church. So I, I want to summarize and come to an end with this idea of marriage with five words. And it's these five words that you can say often to your spouse. I choose you, I do. I choose you, I do. Now, the story of this commandment is not just a story of marriage, though. And for those of you who aren't married, you might have been wondering, like, okay, so how does this apply to me? And, and of course, it does apply in the context of relationships, covenant relationships, but it also applies to the relationship we have with God. And he makes it really clear that his enduring love is designed for growing us closer to him. Do you ever feel like that helpless, broken baby in Ezekiel 16? Unwanted, abandoned, unworthy? Well, I want you to know that God sees you and he looks in at you and he says, I choose you. And, and he, he invests in you. 
Maybe you've been uh, seeing that and, and it's been growing slowly developing uh, as you walk closer and closer to Christ. Um, maturing in him, kind of like that baby in Ezekiel 16 who grew to be a teenager and then to be a woman. Maybe your life has been in that process and you haven't yet made a commitment to Christ where you have uh, made that covenant with him through baptism. I'd like to encourage you, if, if you're at that point in your maturity where God is saying to you, I choose you, I want you to be my, my bride, so to speak, then I'd, I'd like to encourage you with these words in Hebrews 4, 7. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. Israel hardened their heart, and when God made a covenant with them, they committed adultery. I'd like you to, to not commit adultery. I'd like to challenge you to say yes to God and to submit to him. The submission that, that Ephesians 5 describes for the woman is, is a submission every one of us should have to Christ, a submission in everything our whole lives exposed to God and completely open to his leadership in our hearts. Maybe you've had that covenant relationship with God for quite some time, and like the Laodicean church, your relationship with him has grown to be tepid, kind of halfway, not passionately hot, not, not all the way towards uh, adultery, but, but somehow you've kind of landed in this place of contentment. He's still your God. But you're just going through the motions of church and prayer and, and you feel like you're pretty good. Like nothing's really wrong in your relationship with God. But I'd like to suggest that this complacency is just as deadly to a thriving relationship as adultery is. In fact, it might be worse because we don't even see that we have a need. With adultery, at least you can recognize this relationship is broken and dead. But with this tepid, halfway Laodicean experience, the relationship, it can go on and on and on without thriving, without the possibility of growth, without the empowerment that love and faithfulness bring, and, and, and without even recognizing there's a need for change. If you recognize that kind of complacent spirit in your own heart, then I'd like to challenge you with what Revelation 3.20 says. And Jesus is talking to his Laodicean, tepid, content church, and he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The promise God makes is, if you just hear me, if you just hear my love knocking on your heart's door and say yes, and you submit to me and let me in, then I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to have a meal with you and that intimate relationship that, uh, that, that's possible with, you and with me in your heart. Don't turn away in unfaithfulness. Open the door and say yes to God. Let him nurture you and guide you and teach you. And remember that God is saying to you, I choose you, I do.